2: So most people know my brother as this like fierce competitor. First time he touched the football, he ran it back 80 yards for a touchdown and was just this kid phenom, you know, number one in the world at 18, but I grew up with him. So I got the dirt. I mean, I remember the days where he and my middle brother were obsessed with Superman and they made my mom safety pin Superman capes to their ski jackets and that's how they skied around. So. You know hopefully jeremy doesn't kill me for saying this but um (laughs) you gotta keep it real you may have heard of my brother jeremy bloom he is a two-time olympic skier and former nfl player after we stopped competing we each took our own unique path i of course got involved in poker then wrote a book and somehow convinced aaron sorkin to adapt it into an oscar-nominated film jeremy started a charity and founded a tech company And my middle brother, Jordan, became a cardiothoracic surgeon. In our own lanes, we've all really pursued excellence. People often comment on this, how there must have been something in the water, or how our parents must have run a really tight ship. And they did run a tight ship. We owe them a lot. But it's not just about that. Building yourself up, creating a new life for yourself after your first life as an athlete is over, requires more than just a certain kind of upbringing. Even the most talented, most poised, and most lauded gold medalists can fall apart when they hang up their skis or spikes or racket and face the empty road ahead. Your whole life up to that point, all of your energy, all of your focus, everything you do has been in service of one ultimate goal, a gold medal. Figuring out what comes next is terrifying. It's the process of rebirth, of reinvention. They can make the most grueling training regimen. The gnarliest of slopes look like a complete cakewalk. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. And who better to talk about the high stakes of Olympic competition and what comes next Then my brother, Jeremy Bloom. And a quick heads up, this episode is going to sound a little different than our typical storytelling. This season, we'll be featuring some raw conversations with athletes that'll really take you inside their heads. A couple of months ago, I sat down with Jeremy to talk about how we've both reinvented ourselves more than once on a path to find meaning and success in our lives. We talked about the process of reinvention and what it takes. So Jeremy, will you introduce yourself and give a brief background on your life, your greatest hits?
1: <laughs> the thing I love to do most, introduce myself. Yes. Sure. So yeah, my name is Jeremy Bloom and I am commonly known as the, the football skier guy. <laughs> Focused on two sports growing up, football and skiing. So some people either know me as the football guy or the ski guy, or now people know me as Molly Bloom's brother. So depending <laughs> on which facet of life I'm speaking to the other person, those are kind of my three names of claim. So, and now I'm a CEO of an internet startup company that I started about a decade ago and the founder uh, of a nonprofit that I also started about a decade ago.
2: Awesome. Jeremy, a lot of people know you, as you just mentioned, as the football skier guy. And I think there was a a lot of attention and due given to your early sports career, but not as many people know what you're up to now. So what's going on in your life right now and what you're working on?
1: So you know, when I left the Pittsburgh Steelers around 2009, I started the Wish of Lifetime nonprofit in 2008 while I was still with the Steelers and really our goal is to grant lifelong wishes to 80, 90 and 100 year old people. We have this belief that in our society, especially inside of this country, that we don't do enough to kind of celebrate, support, and assist uh, the elderly. And we think that these folks are really important to our life. We, we think their goals and dreams still really matter. And we're an organization that, uh, that grants their lifelong wishes. And it's been an incredible journey over the past uh, decade plus. The skiing and the new football, if I could make that analogy, would be the internet startup that I, I started about a decade ago. The name of the company is called Integrate. It's B2B enterprise software. We sell into marketers. And so for the past decade, I've traded my, my skis and, and the football for entrepreneurship, both in the for-profit and in nonprofit space. And I love it. And my body thanks me every day that I'm no longer <laughs> taking hits on a Sunday on a football field or uh, on a Saturday at a World Cup.
2: Jer- Jeremy's story is in kind of stark contrast to the direction that I went. I think we started out in the same places growing up in this family that really valued academic success and athletic success. Yeah, And I formulated the plan for my life based on those values that were imparted to us. And my plan was that I also wanted to be a, an Olympic skier and I wanted to go to uh, Ivy League law school. I ultimately ended up walking away from skiing yeah. and was pretty disappointed, kind of felt like I had gave it my all and hadn't really... Gotten the results that I wanted. And so I went to L.A. to take a year off in between undergrad and law school. And I think I was primed for a rebellion. Mm -hmm. That's why when I walked into that first poker game and I saw this incredible sort of underground scene that was happening, but also saw how I could build a business that produced these kind of events and leveraged these relationships. It was very appealing to me. It was was non-conventional. And this was all happening simultaneously as kind of you were having these big moments in your life. It was really in stark contrast. And then I really did it. I really blew my entire life up and found myself at this place where I was 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, a convicted felon, social pariah. (laughs) And so here's my moment of create this radical reinvention. So I wrote a book and then I, I somehow convinced Aaron Sorkin to write the movie. (laughs) The movie came out and it did well. And then I was kind of faced with, okay, but what now? Where do I go from here? The first opportunity that came along was this opportunity to travel the world and to speak about reinvention, about what happens when the world brings you to your knees. Yeah. So that's kind of the quick, dirty version of what I've been doing since the movie came out and where my path has led. And now I want to go back in time a bit and talk about how we grew up.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: So I'm trying to remember when we realized that you weren't just a, a, a normal sort of skilled mogul skier. I mean, you were number one in the world at 18 years old, right? hmm Yeah. Do you remember, was there a point where you realized, I can really take this all the way? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think the the interesting thing for me about the two sports that I did from the outside looking in, I was treated much, much differently in both sports. I I think from Mm. a pretty young age, people on the outside looking in would tell me, wow, you might be able to make this the US ski team. You might even be able to go to the Olympics. I think I showed promise at a young age in skiing, whereas football was kind of the opposite. It was like, Mm. you're the smallest kid on every football (laughs) field you've ever played on. Why are you playing football? In, In fact when i was very very young our mom set up our pediatrician to pull out the growth chart and to, to specifically show me how small i was in in relation to other people my size and how that related to me maybe not playing football cuz mom you know as you know mom never wanted me to play football she never wanted any of her kids playing football because it was you know too dangerous so there was some crossroads in my life when I made the U.S. ski team at 15 and I was like a freshman on the football team. Again, smallest <laughs> kid on the football team. Mm-hmm. My, my The coaches on the U.S. ski team said, look, you're a part-time skier. You you have to move to the mountains. You have to go to high school at one of these four schools and you have to give up football if you want to be part of the United States ski team. In fact, I had mm. to petition For my fellow teammates to sign saying that they didn't mind if I played football. It was kind of it was a weird dynamic at a 15. But uh, yeah, so I think that skiing was always the sport that maybe came a little bit easier to me. And I should promise it at a younger age, football was a harder path for me to be able to stand out and have success in. Because I'm five foot nine and the hundred and seventy-five mm-hmm. pounds soaking wet and most people that play football are bigger than that.
2: I remember when you made the NFL and I met you in Vegas and you were there with some of your teammates and I think they were like linebackers or something. <laughs> and you were standing at the booth and, and I was like, My brother's gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> like he is not gonna make it. And my whole life also like After having that back surgery, doctors, parents, there's no, pick a new hobby, girl. (laughs) Mogul skiing's not for you. Or starting that business at 25 with all these incredibly accomplished, powerful people. And then finally, when I was taking the story around people saying like, listen, you're not going to get a meeting with someone like Spielberg or Sorkin. It's just not going to happen.
1: Oh, I, I will never forget that. In fact, when you were living at Moms, you know, uh, federally in, in, indicted and uh, they took, froze all your assets and you did not have a lot of leverage. And you're like, I'm going to do a movie. And anytime you say something, you're going to do something, we believe it because like you've proven that, but doing a movie is really hard. And so we knew it was going to be uphill battle. And I'll never forget when you got a movie deal from a really good studio and you turned it down <laughs> and nobody understood how that's, how somebody in their right mind could possibly turn down a, a pretty good deal. Cause you're like, no, Aaron Sorkin is the person that's going to write this. I was like, wow, talk about going to Vegas and putting your whole bank account on not just red on the roulette table, but like 26 red. <laughs> you know, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to hit this. I mean, that was pretty remarkable.
2: What do you think it was about our childhood that sort of instilled this idea in all of us that, you know, the world can say that it's not going to happen. The odds can be so ridiculously stacked against it, but still that knowing that I can get there.
1: I don't think we're unique in the sense of like, we have an ability that other people don't have. I just think the ability inside of us was exercised at a younger age. Mm -hmm. And I I would just kind of encourage anybody to find that inside of themselves, because I think we all have it. And and I think it just comes back to this this belief that really anything is possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. in Jordan's example, let's say he applied to 50 medical schools. Mm -hmm. If he would have applied to 49, he wouldn't be a doctor. And so what stops somebody at 40? I think that some people, a lot of people get just too brought down or distracted by the inevitable moments of failure. And I think in our lives, we've just accepted those things are going to happen. And they're more kind of an artifact of the journey and less of a personalization of who we are. We don't become our failures. We just know that, yep, that was a misstep. All right, what can I learn from that important artifact to kind of calibrate the compass? So I think everybody has that. It's just a matter of finding it and exercising it dad instilled in us at a very young age mm. that you just keep moving no matter what happens. Life is going to knock you down. You're going to fail many times in route to, to kind of overcoming those failures to, to reach victory. And we just, we weren't allowed to point the finger at other people when we made a mistake. So we couldn't be a victim, wasn't allowed in our household. We had to look inside of ourselves and say, what did I do wrong? What contributed to missing the mark? And there wasn't a lot of time for crying. We had to get over things really quickly. We had to have a short memory. And mom was the, the more, I really care about, are you thinking about how to make the world a little bit better? Are, are, are all your goals self-serving or, or are some of them meant to help other people along the way? And she did a good job reminding us um, how lucky we are that uh, we weren't born into poverty because people don't have that choice. Some people are just born into poverty poverty because of chance and circumstance. And it's much harder for those folks in life than it is if you're in the middle class. I think both of them provided a really healthy balance that I think plays out in in all of our personalities today.
2: As you were talking, I was thinking about two tangible things that both of them did through our life that I think really formed us. And I don't know if you remember this, but when mom would put us to bed at night, we she would lay in bed with us and she would ask us what we did well and what we could do better. Kind of like an early introduction to moral mindfulness and to sort of train young brains to be focused on, okay, so tomorrow's a new day. What can I do better yeah. and how can I be better? And then I think one of dad's humongous contributions besides requiring us to take radical responsibility for our lives was his instruction on fear He had so much passion around this that we were not allowed to let fear sideline us. And I think dad used a a variety of different settings to teach us this. And I think it was one of the most powerful lessons, particularly for me, because I was kind of a scared little kid. And to get to the other side of fear time and time again as a young kid is so instructive and is so impactful in how you live your life. And by the way, so is I'm going to require you to look at your actions and see if you are a good yeah. person today. Yeah, for know? sure.
1: We were lucky to have the balance because one without the other, we I think we would be different human beings today. And um, just grateful that we were able to have that balance.
2: Mm-hmm. So you know, I've never talked to you about this before, Jeremy. And this is something I'm really fascinated by because it's been a huge part of my journey. And that is when you've reached these. High places, being number one in the world at 18 years old, winning world championships three times in a row, going into both Olympics, ranked number one in the world, getting drafted fifth round of Philadelphia, all these major places of success. How did it make you feel?
1: Um, It's a good question. I mean, so backing up a little bit. Just to, to kind of highlight the the interest that I had a very young age of of having success and people knowing my name. In the third grade, I probably spent more time practicing my autograph than I did in math <laughs> or science. <laughs> And mom still has all the pages and I'd come home and I'd say, mom, do you like this signature better than this signature? I can only imagine what she was thinking. Like, gosh, what kind of kid am I, am I, am I raising? So I think like from a pretty young age, I mean, my influences were John Elway and Dion Sanders, these larger than life figures who everybody knew their name. They were signing autographs. And I thought that's what kind of success looked like is, are you signing autographs or not? Yeah. Or do people know who you are? And when I started to reach a level of notoriety, when people actually did, Know my name or uh, what I look like, and those types of things. It, it became uncomfortable really fast because, as you know, I'm much more of an introvert than an extrovert. Dad describes me as a well compensated introvert because most of the things I've done in, in my life, I've needed to be able to flex to be an extrovert. And I started to become super kind of like insecure in, in the sense of these people don't know me. They're making these judgment calls on me. And I would read all the things in the newspapers. So I actually. The thing I wanted the most, I realized I didn't like. And I had to learn how to balance it all and how to not really kind of tap into the energy that's created when people do know your name or your story or your likeness. And it it took me definitely a couple of years to kind of get more comfortable with living a life that's more in the spotlight than a life that was otherwise lived a bit behind closed doors.
2: I don't know if this is true. And it's so interesting to have this conversation with you. Um, Did you go into these endeavors these ambitions with this idea that this will make me whole or this will make my life good or were you kind of solid before
1: no i've gone through a lot of kind of different chapters in in my life thinking different things would complete my life for example mm. there was a, a time in my life when i said i and, and i vividly remember this if i could just make the usk team my life would be complete. Mm-hmm. I could ride off into the sunset. I would be happy forever. I would always be part of the US ski team. And then I made the US ski team and I was really pumped. I was super pumped for like 24 hours. And then I woke up, I'm like, all right, this is not enough. My life's not complete. Now I gotta go win a world cup. And what I've learned through chasing a lot of these different kind of, I guess you could call them mirages, right? Cause like you're in the mm-hmm. desert, you look at the, oh my God, there's water and you get there and there's no water. <laughs> is like this concept of, I describe it as like treadmill goal setting where you're running, but you're not really kind of going anywhere because you're reaching these milestones and you think that they're going to get you to your de- to, the, to the ultimate destination and they're not. And so what the impact that has had on my life is I have de-emphasized the end result and lionized the journey. So mm-hmm. I care much more about the journey to get to that end result and pay attention to, to that experience then I do to put all, all the emphasis on when I accomplish this, that, this, that, the other thing. And it's just more like a, a moment of satisfaction if you meet the milestone. But knowing that there's no goal out there, there's nothing mm-hmm. out there that will, for super competitive or hyper-driven people, will com- quote, com- complete their life. It's a mirage. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe it actually exists.
2: But you, at least you know what it's not.
1: Well, I, I don't know the key to happiness, but I certainly know the key to a pretty miserable life is trying to appease everybody trying Mm -hmm. to have everybody like you. I think that's an impossible journey. No matter, I mean, there's people who didn't like Mother Teresa, for God's sakes. No matter who you are, what you do, there's going to be people that that don't like you and that's okay. And I think it's more important to be yourself, be authentic. Mm -hmm. And the people that are drawn to you and connect to you great. You'll create some great friends. But I think it's our reality in life that we're not going to make all of our colleagues like us, no matter how Mm -hmm. hard we try.
2: Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that on such a deep level. I really thought that accomplishing these goals, getting to these places would fix me, would make me whole. For better or worse, and, and whether it was reality or not, I just, you know, I always felt so much less than you and Jordan. I think because your skill sets presented a lot earlier than mine. Um, I think that I had a bit of a rougher road and I always wanted a seat at our family's table. And so I went out into the world with this rage to to find the thing that was going to give me that seat at the table. And I remember the year that I made Norams and and you and I actually got the same, like we were both third overall in North America (laughs) and that didn't do it. And then, you know, I went into LA and I started making like $4 million a year at 25 years old (laughs) and that didn't do it. And then when I finally realized that it was never going to be an accolade or an accomplishment was... About six months before the movie came out, the movie was made. People were raving about it. I had somehow convinced Aaron Sorkin, maybe the most (laughs) prolific screenwriter of our time, to write a movie about my life on the heels of writing one about Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) And I still didn't feel it. And in that moment was like sort of the end of chapter one of my life and the beginning of chapter two in that my ideas about peace and happiness and success, I have to now own have been wrong.
1: I think it's important for all of us to remember that just because a a full trophy case or a big bank account or all those types of things, I think, have actually very little impact on mental health. In fact, one of the really meaningful journeys in my life was executive producing of The Way to Gold with Michael Phelps, which was a documentary on HBO that talked to the most successful Olympic athletes in the United States history. And the one common bond that they all shared was mental health, depression, mm-hmm. thoughts of suicide. And it kind of goes mm-hmm. over how normal these things are in our society today. And so destigmatizing mental health, destigmatizing depression is not a weakness in the human body. And at some elevated levels, it's it's a condition just like diabetes and cancer. And we need to think about it that way and under that lens. And so that we can get help when we're feeling not okay, I think is a big step to contributing to Maybe not the full solution, because I don't know if there is one, but uh, m- making the situation better for all humans as it relates to kind of the mental health disease space.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've both seen this dark side of success. I would look around the poker table at night and I would see some of the most successful, most gifted, miserable. most powerful people. And Just they miserable were people. miserable and, and they were owned by their addictions. They were owned by the hedonic treadmill of I need more and I need bigger and it was never enough. And yeah, I mean, it definitely debunked that idea that like inner peace and happiness. I really think it's an inside job.
1: I I think it's all a mirage. If I could just do this, my life would be complete.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not to say that accomplishing things doesn't feel good, but it is not the secret sauce. It's not the keystone.
1: Oh, it'll make you feel good for a period of time, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) 24
2: hours. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it definitely makes you feel good, but it's not sustainable.
0: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Capella University is rethinking higher
2: education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule. So you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently.
0: at capella.edu.
2: So what's it like to decide to retire, you know, to finally face that blank page after having explicit structured goals laid out for you for years and and having this be your entire life?
1: It's funny because athletes retire at such a young age. I mean, it's kind of a foreign concept. Oh, you're 26 or 27. You're retiring. Right. <laughs> like, I know. You're not really retired. You're kind of transitioning. But my biggest fear in, in sports was not that I wouldn't win a gold medal or whatever in football. It was that I would always miss it. And, and I mm. think most athletes who reach that level know that they're going to have to kind of redefine themselves in life because they're not going to be the whatever athlete forever. And that's really hard, really, really hard. I have really near and dear friends who have yet to do it and they've been out of sports for a decade and it, it's really difficult. I'm just really grateful. And I was very lucky to be able to transition into two things that I love. I just love them. Mm-hmm. I, I love them as mm-hmm. much as I love football and skiing and they're as challenging and all those types of things. So for me, but I was very intentional. I, I planted a ton of seeds outside of athletics because I knew at some point I needed some of those to grow, <laughs> as if they didn't. Mm-hmm. I was just going to be a lost cause. And so most of the business ideas or ventures or things, they, it didn't grow. It didn't work. But I put the effort out there. Two of them fortunately did. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to have the wish of a lifetime and integrate to be able to apply my passions to. I, I really kind of traded football and skiing for two, two different adventures, both as an entrepreneur.
2: When we were growing up, if someone would have said, What's the last thing you could see your brother Jeremy doing in the world? I would say, I don't know, a tech startup software company. <laughs> like, Wasn't obvious when I like, was- Like, how did that happen? <laughs> I think the story about how Wish of a Lifetime happened is super profound. And if I, re- if I recall this correctly, it came from traveling to different countries, right? And seeing the reverence that they gave to the the oldest people in their society.
1: I made the United States ski team when I was 15, so pretty Mm -hmm. young. Mm -hmm. And I started traveling the world for the first time. I left the United States. And one of the first trips was to Tokyo, Japan, which is like a totally different planet if you're 15 and never left the United States. (laughs) I mean, the cultural differences are are, are pretty deep. And I'll never forget this one moment. We were on a public transportation, just a normal bus in downtown Tokyo. And it was really crowded. I mean, personal space in in Asia doesn't necessarily have the same rules and regulations as it does here in in the United States. And I watched a 80- or 90-year-old woman start to slowly board that, that bus. And I was thinking, gosh, she's frail. And like, how is this going to work? It's a really crowded bus. And, and I saw everybody get out of their seats and help her onto the bus, make sure that she had a seat and the bus didn't move until she was safe and taken care of. And then they bowed to her. Mm. And I was really like, I was like, wow, is this woman famous? Should I know who this <laughs> is? But just it just turned out, I mean, that's just normal in, in other societies. I mean, you just take care of the elderly and not just in Asia, but in Scandinavia countries, Eastern European countries. And so he was always drawn to this ideal of putting the elderly first, and appreciating them, supporting them, assisting them. And we shared an incredible bond with both of our grandparents. Our grandfather was my first ski instructor because you and Mm -hmm. Jordan were better than I was. And so mom and dad pawned me off with, pop, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you guys went skiing. And he had this ingenious way to teach me how to ski by throwing a little miniature sized candy bars down the mountain. And if I was good enough to to ski and find them, I could eat them. So needless (laughs) to say, I loved skiing at a young age. (laughs) So it was, yeah, I mean, the two impetus were really the cultural differences in other cultures and societies as it relates to kind of treating the oldest folks in those population sets and then my relationship with our grandparents growing up.
2: And I think also our dads sort of had this platform of strive for excellence, discipline, hold yourself accountable. And I think our mom really instilled this moral code into us and to look and see how we could be of service. And, you know, I think that is you at 15 noticing this and wanting to get actionable about this is certainly a byproduct of that side of parenting.
1: Yeah, for sure. Especially the mom influence. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think that more of our influences to give back and make the world a better place and to treat people with great respect came from mom. Not that dad didn't think that that was important. Yeah.
2: Talk us through the software tech CEO.
1: When I was playing for the Eagles, the NFL had recently launched a program where players could take. MBA classes at Kellogg, Harvard, Stanford, or Wharton. And because Wharton was in my backyard in Philadelphia, I'm like, wow, this could be really interesting. Obviously, it's a great business school. I was like, I don't know what I will learn here, but it seems like a great rock to turn over and see what's underneath it. And I went to Wharton and I was just really inspired, primarily by Peter Lenneman, who was a professor at Wharton and a good friend and mentor to me today. So I I was drawn to him and and, and asked him if I could kind of quasi intern um, in his office just to be around him and try to be a sponge and absorb whatever information I could glean from that experience. And he was very open arms and said, absolutely. So after practice and in the summers, I would go in and intern at, at American Land Fund. And it was really there where I started, you know, getting really excited about the Internet startup space. And I kind of thought of some ideas of startups and I pitched Peter. And the thing that he did teach me that really stands out is he said, before you start a company, go join one first. His quote was, go lose somebody else's money first before you <laughs> lose yours. And it was just profound wisdom, especially for for athletes after their careers, because they go into a new career and feel like they can do anything and and they just need to will it to happen like they did in sports. But so I did that. I joined a small startup. I was running customer acquisition marketing, which I had no idea what that even meant (laughs) at the time. And, but I approached it as an athlete kind of sink or swim. Then about nine months into that role, I just had this idea that software should be automating a lot of the manual processes that we were doing. And I was super naive. I didn't know what I didn't know, which actually was a huge benefit to me. And I co-founded at the time with a guy who was technical. We visioned it out together and and he kind of built it. I kind of sold it in those early days. And throughout the next decade, we grew from, you know, two guys on a whiteboard to now over 300 employees in 26 countries and pre-IPO business at scale that's doing some great things for marketers. We're not saving lives or anything, but we're really helping marketers do their job, which is fun and fulfilling. And and it's been a pretty incredible journey.
2: Yeah, that's so cool. And also just absolutely shocking. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew you, I've known you forever. So I know I don't know how, if that's a compliment actually. I, no, it is a compliment because I know how foreign that must have been for you, yeah, you know, to walk into and how not in your wheelhouse, just- looking at what you focused on and that I think it's just a huge testament to the vision and execution that you have exemplified over and over again. I
1: did intentionally set a goal when I left athletics that I, and I, always said this. In fact, I wrote it on my quote board. I wanted to reinvent myself. It was such an intentional exercise for me Mm -hmm. because that time when I left the NFL, when I left the Olympic sports arena, the natural career progression from there is maybe do some TV, maybe go into coaching, athletic training, those types of things. But I didn't want to do that.
2: And I think that's what I was getting at is just how radical the reinvention was.
1: Yeah, I, I, that was intentional. I mean, not necessarily, yeah. I didn't know I would go into marketing software. That was not intentional, but I did want to climb a brand new mountain. And I had been climbing the proverbial skiing mountain for over a decade. I've been doing the same in, in football for a couple of decades. And I just wanted to be a beginner again. I wanted to, mm-hmm. to go get scared of, to do a snowplow on the greens. Again. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wanted to have that beginner's mindset.
2: Yeah, Jeremy's humble, so he's not going to tell you all, all the accolades that Integrate and Wish of a Lifetime have received, and and just how big he scaled it. But th- they're both incredibly successful. You know, I'm just I'm so proud of you and blown away every day by what you continue to accomplish and how big it is.
1: It's been an interesting journey in both of them, and there was times of what what looked to be ultimate failure in both, and which I think is mm-hmm. really normal. We're just now starting to kind of come out of this COVID transition where we can grant wishes to, to seniors in person again safely. And so just really excited about the next chapter ahead with with our new partners.
2: So Jeremy, being in, in sports and in business and in the places you've been, you've definitely seen the dangerous side of unfettered ambition. And I am a cautionary tale. <laughs> so how do you draw the line? How do you not let ambition completely hijack you and your brain? And how do you stay attached to that moral code?
1: Well, it's pretty easy because I remind myself that I have a really comfortable bed, and I love sleeping <laughs> in my bed. It's got everything I need in, in there, and like the idea of sleeping in a prison bed is not really <laughs> one that is compelling to me. So it's depending on what line you're talking about. If it's criminal line, that's that's pretty easy for me to draw. Like that's just not <laughs> a life for me. So I know that, you know, I think then once you kind of don't go past the criminal line although now I'm self-reflecting on who I'm talking to and I'm finding some irony <laughs> in what I'm saying. But like once you calibrate there, that's the fine line. It, it becomes harder, right? Because I, mm-hmm. I think most people who set out to do something really hard have to blur some of those lines and have to take some big risks, some calculated risks. But for me in my own personal life, it's been pretty easy to like not run up against the criminal line. But I need to ask you, what What was going through your mind? I mean, just what were you thinking?
2: Yeah. You know, it's, I'd found something that didn't make me feel necessarily whole or fulfilled, but came about as close as as it had ever come. And I felt special and I felt powerful. And I thought that was the only option for me. Yeah. And that, the things that it gave me, I was willing to go into hell for. And the other piece of that was drugs and alcohol came into play. And when you aren't sleeping and when you are taking mind-mood altering substances, it starts to really degrade at smart decision-making and and a moral code and also who I was surrounding myself with. This was totally normal. And up until this point, I had always sort of gotten off on risk and fear and everything and always asked myself the question, what's the worst that could happen? And then I got beaten up by the Italian mob and arrested by 17 FBI agents. <laughs> and I don't ask myself that question anymore.
1: <laughs> and I remember towards the end of your poker games, when I would come to the games in, in New York, I mean, the games in LA were fun. It was like the who's who yeah. celebrities. And it was just, it was lighthearted. It was fun. It was cool. And towards the end in New York, this is just my observation. It turned dark. Like, The people in the room, just the energy felt very dark. And then I thought about you collecting as much money as you needed to collect from these really dark people. And I actually started getting really concerned for your safety. Mm -hmm. In fact, I told mom and dad that if you went missing, I wouldn't be surprised. And that like hit them with a ton of bricks. Fortunately, it was, it was close to the end. I mean, the FBI did you the best, in my view, did you the best favor they possibly could have to, because I don't know if you would have gotten out on your own. Um,
2: I know I should send them a gift.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Talk about the radical reinvention. They certainly helped you get there, but it felt pretty dangerous in the the end.
2: If you could reinvent yourself once again, no strings attached, what would you want to do next? Oh, it's most
1: important to me now is to to be the best father I possibly can be. I have a 10 month old daughter. I have an incredible wife. We're building a wonderful family. We have a, a Bernadoodle dog that is our son. <laughs> we love him as much as <laughs> Violet, our daughter. You know, we're building a family. We're building our tribe. And I want to be really present throughout the, the life of my children. Everybody tells you it goes fast. And I'm really early in that journey. And of course, you're pregnant. And, you know, we're just mm-hmm. really excited about, you know, building this kind of tribe together as, as, as the blooms. And I want to make sure I'm calibrating my life correctly in this next chapter so that I can be a really big and immersive part of my children's and your children's life and uh, be a good uncle and be a good father.
2: It's so freaking awesome that we're doing it at the same time. <laughs> I
1: know. it's really cool.
2: <laughs> it's really cool. So like, you wouldn't want to be a rock star or anything?
1: <laughs> can't sing, can't <laughs> play an instrument, not <laughs> me happening. Neither.
2: Me neither, but I yeah. think this is like in the fantasy world. Yeah, I know everyone always asks me when I speak, they're like, do you miss it? Do you miss the life? And there was something extremely compelling about it. It was like, it it was an adventure. It was slightly dangerous. There was a lot of adrenaline. It was exciting. It was mine. Every day was different. And it took me a while, but man, I don't miss it at all.
1: You don't? Wow. No. That's pretty amazing.
2: Jeremy, I've found this conversation so interesting because we've talked about things that we've never talked about. (laughs) And I really thought we've covered everything it's really awesome to have you. You are obviously one of my favorite people and I continue to be more amazed by you every time I have a conversation and I'm super happy that you came on the show. Uh,
1: you're really good for my ego. I need to hang out with you a little bit more, <laughs> but no, <laughs> I, the feeling is obviously very mutual and you know how proud I am of you and how inspired I am and, and I love you and I enjoyed the conversation.
2: I've spent a lot of time thinking about reinvention um, and I think First and foremost, it's a choice that you have to continually make. When you zoom out in that way, then I think you have to be prepared and make that choice that you're willing to do whatever it takes to live your truth and live your purpose. Something that really is helpful is starting to reframe your reaction, your relationship to discomfort. It's so easy to believe our brains when they tell us that, this is hard, so this isn't the right idea, <laughs> you know? This is hard, so we should just quit. Um, it feels like the truth, and and I, in my life, and my experience, it, it just hasn't been. So finding a way to sort of overcome yourself in those moments and to keep going, I think, is the cornerstone for resilience and for reinvention. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Jenner Pasqua and Nikki Stein. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Levino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched, champion bobsledder Kaylee Humphreys shares her gutsy story about how she switched teams and nationalities to flee an abusive team environment, even though her future as an Olympian hung in the balance. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. More episodes of Torched are coming soon. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.